0: Our scripture reading this evening comes from Second Peter. 2 Peter chapter two, and we will read verses 10 through 16. Hear now God's holy inspired and inerrant word. <clears throat> Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, or Basor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you know anything about counterfeit money, you know sometimes it's easy to identify and sometimes it's not so easy. There are good knockoffs and there are bad knockoffs. But even the best counterfeit bills don't hold up when measured against the real thing. And the only way to know the difference between a counterfeit bill and a legitimate one is by having an intimate knowledge of the real thing. How do you know if something's a fraud? How do you know if something is an imposter? by studying the real thing, by knowing the real thing. And in our text this evening from Second Peter, we, we see this dynamic at play. There are false teachers in the church who go around masquerading as God's prophets. And how do we know they're false prophets? How do we know they're counterfeit? Well, by studying the real thing, by being trained in the true prophecy, which is the word of God. The real thing is the word of God, and we measure their words, their false prophecy against the true prophecy, the word of our Lord. And by doing so, we can learn to identify their falsehood. Now, we find in the Bible that there are only two prophetic lineages. Two lines of prophets that are diametrically opposed. The lineage of Balaam and the lineage of Moses. The lineage of the serpent and the lineage of Jesus Christ. The lineage of falsehood and the lineage of truth. And our passage this evening presents these lines in opposition to one another. They are irreconcilable. They cannot coexist. Darkness Cannot cohabitate with light. But we're reminded in our text that while darkness cannot cohabitate with light, it always tries to do so. Evil always tries to pervert righteousness. There is nothing new under the sun. The false teachers seeking to deceive the church in Peter's day are simply perpetuating the sin of their father, the devil who the scriptures say is himself the father of lies. You could say that he is the first false prophet. And the false teachers uh, that, have, that have risen up in the past, that rose up in Peter's day and will rise up again in the church today, as Peter says they will in chapter two, verse one, they, they simply carry on in the lineage of Balaam, in the lineage of of the devil. They are sons of Lamech. Lamech is the descendant of Cain, the the murderer. And Lamech raises his voice against God in Genesis chapter four. He speaks a false word against the living and true God. He blasphemes the living and true God. And these false prophets, these false teachers are Lamech's sons. They have no new word. They have no new message. They simply carry on, they simply perpetuate the lineage of false prophecy. This blasphemy and falsehood goes back all the way to the fall of mankind. And we see four things about these false prophets in our text. We see their behavior, their end, their infiltration, and their rival. Their behavior, their end, their infiltration, and their rival. Well, let's begin with their behavior. In verse 10, the apostle Peter, guided by the Holy Spirit, describes the audacity of these false teachers. He describes their brazenness. Peter has just finished speaking about the examples of judgment in the Old Testament. God will not be mocked. Peter is saying, God has judged the unrighteous in the past and he will do it again. And their judgment serves as both an example for us of what happens if we harden our hearts toward God, but also as a source of comfort for those who suffer unjustly at the hands of wicked men. Evildoers will not escape punishment on the day of judgment. And Peter picks up this thought in verse 10, especially these false teachers, he says, uh, first referenced in verse one, especially these false teachers will not escape, especially these false teachers who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. They will face punishment in this life and in the life to come, or as we might say for them, in the death to come. Their behavior is an abomination before the Lord. They despise authority. They despise the authority of God. They despise the authority of his word, the authority of his church. And they, the text says they feed uh, their appetite for sin. They indulge the lust of defiling passion. They make no effort to fight against their sexual lust. No effort, they, they eagerly feed it and they, they don't tiptoe around the church trying to conceal their love for sin. No, they are flagrant about their sin. They, they celebrate it. They parade their sin around for everyone to see. We see this behavior even in verse 13. Peter says they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. In other words, they take joy in preaching about their sinful rebellion in broad daylight. They take joy in shouting it from the rooftops. They take joy in in preaching a false gospel. Their deepest desire is to call everyone's attention away from God and call everyone's attention to themselves. They are bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse ten. Now, who are these glorious ones in verse 10 that they blaspheme? Well, the NIV gives us a better translation here. The NIV renders them as celestial beings. And most theologians agree here that these celestial beings are fallen angels. The fallen angels that we find in verse four and that we find in Jude verse six. These glorious ones or celestial beings They fell in the rebellion against God with Lucifer. And the false teachers from verse 1 picked up in verse 10 these false teachers blaspheme these fallen angels, these celestial beings. Now, how is it that evil men can blaspheme evil angels? Isn't God alone the only one who can be blasphemed? Why is it wrong to blaspheme fallen angels? Well, the answer is uh, rather simple, and it's this, that even though these fallen angels have sinned, they still bear some imprint of God's glory. Even in their sin and misery, fallen angels retain something of the indelible mark of the glory of God. And the specific blasphemy against them by these false prophets was likely one of two things. Either the false prophets denied the spiritual realm and so denied their existence, and this does seem probable considering the false prophets were materialists, they believed this world was all that there is, there's no second coming of Christ, or their blasphemy against fallen angels was mocking the reality of hell, mocking the possibility that their sins would result in eternal torment at the hands of these fallen angels, these evil spirits. In either case, we're told in verse 11 that not even the righteous angels behave this way. Not even the righteous angels pronounce a blasphemous judgment against the fallen angels. Not even angels of light, in verse 11, condemn the celestial beings, the fallen angels of verse 10. And as we know from parallel verses uh, to verses 10 and 11, as we know from parallel verses in Jude 8 and 9, the angels of light Even they reserve judgment for the Lord. They do not pronounce a a blasphemous judgment against the fallen angels. No, they reserve that judgment for the living and true God. It is God alone who will condemn the angels of darkness and it is God alone who will condemn these false teachers. And these parallel passages in Jude verses eight and nine, they, they give us a profound insight into the spiritual realm. Many Christians today live as functional materialists. We forget about the reality of spiritual warfare. Some of us need to wake up. We are in the middle of a cosmic battle, the the battle between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. The world we find ourselves in today, the Western world, America, is not in a culture war. We are in a spiritual war. The Bible says in First Peter 5 that our adversary, the devil, prowls around, roaring like a lion, seeking someone to devour. In Job chapters 1 and 2, we read that God, in his sovereignty, allows Satan to afflict Job, to strip him of his material possessions, to render him destitute, to afflict him with sickness. And so we see that even material causes in this world have a, a spiritual dimension. And even though Satan and his minions rage against God and his people. The psalmist reminds us that God is also at work for us in the spiritual dimension. The psalmist says in Psalm 91 that God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And if you are united to Christ, if the same spirit that raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. If the same spirit dwells in your heart, you have nothing to fear. Your adversary has no power over you. The strong man has been bound. Satan may tempt you externally and you must resist him. But if Christ dwells in your heart, you have nothing to fear. Satan and his demons can gain no stronghold in your heart. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And the parallel verse from Jude shows us this very reality that, sh- that Satan has no hold over those who belong to Jesus Christ. We find this back and forth between the archangel Michael contending with the devil Jude's epistle says. And so we have this scene in Jude between Michael the archangel and the devil. Jude's epistle alludes to the fact that Moses has died and the devil comes to make an accusation against Moses. This man cannot enter heaven. He's unworthy. He disobeyed in the wilderness. He struck the rock. Instead of speaking to it, Satan accuses. And God says, my servant shall enter. He is righteous in my sight because he is clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. The Lord rebukes Satan for his accusation in Jude verse nine. And this rebuke is an allusion from Zechariah chapter three. And Zechariah chapter three is one of the most powerful chapters in the Bible. I can't think of any clearer picture that we find in scripture uh, that preaches the good news of our justification by faith in Christ. It preaches it with such palpable imagery. So I'd ask you to turn there if you have your Bibles to, to Zechariah chapter three. And we find this scene, Joshua the high priest stands before the angel of the Lord. You can think of this as a courtroom scene. And here we have Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan comes to do what his name in Hebrew originally means, accuser. Satan comes, Zechariah 3 says, to accuse Joshua. To say, Joshua is a failure. Joshua is a sinner. Joshua is unworthy of your grace. And listen to what the living God of heaven and earth declares. And just imagine the thundering voice of the living and true God ringing out. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. And then we see Joshua's filthy garments are removed, and instead he receives the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. And then God says to him, in this legal, forensic transaction and declaration Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. It is once and for all, it is finished. And friends, this great exchange, the exchange of Joshua's unrighteousness for the righteousness of Christ, it can be yours if you place your faith in him. God's law does demand perfection. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect in heaven. There are, there are no exceptions to this rule. There are no second chances. And on the day of judgment, Satan the accuser loves to remind you of this perfect standard to say you're not good enough, you haven't been perfect, you're prideful, you've disobeyed God, you're a liar, you've stolen, you've lusted. And all those things may be true, but if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus fulfills the perfect standard of God's law on your behalf. Jesus stands in the gap for you. Jesus is your righteousness, so that you can simply point to him and say, he is righteous on my behalf. You are now perfect in the sight of God if you are in Jesus Christ. You have been pardoned in the throne room of God. And Christ has taken the punishment that you deserved for your sins. Though you may be a failure, if you are in Christ, you are more than a conqueror. Though you may be a sinner, in Christ, in his righteous robes, which he dresses us with, you are without blemish. And when Satan stands to accuse you, to remind you of the ugliness of your sin, to to accuse you of, of being unworthy of his grace, as he loves to do, Hear the voice of God say to you, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. So God rebukes Satan, God rebukes fallen angels, and God will rebuke false prophets. And Peter shows us their end in verses 12 through 13. He compares these false prophets and teachers to irrational animals, to beasts. Like animals born to be caught and destroyed, these false prophets were destined for destruction. Think of animals going to the slaughterhouse. So these false prophets, Peter is saying, will go to the slaughterhouse of God's righteous judgment. This is their end. And brothers and sisters, I don't want for us to miss something very important here. Peter describes these false teachers as animalistic, as creatures of instinct. And I want you to remember that this actually describes the state of every human being who is outside of Christ. This was once our state outside of Christ. We were once enemies of God. We were once hostile towards him in nature. We were once dead in our sins. We were like brute beasts, irrational animals. But the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit can make alive even dead hearts. He can turn beasts into beacons of light. Daniel chapter four testifies to this reality. Nebuchadnezzar is judged by God. He lives as one of these irrational animals. He lives as a beast of the field for seven years. We're told that he eats grass like an ox. And this describes who we were outside of Christ. This is who these unrepentant false prophets will be until their destruction. When the Holy Spirit breathes new life into our hearts, we turn from these irrational animals into uh, the rational temples of the Holy Spirit. Daniel chapter four, verse 36 says that Nebuchadnezzar's reason returned to him. He was no longer a brute beast after he repented to the Lord, but instead he became a rational temple of the Spirit and he turned to worship the living and the true God. But these false teachers will remain as beasts so long as they are unrepentant. And they will suffer for their evil deeds as we see in verse 13. The wages of sin is death. They get the payment that they deserve. And then we see their infiltration at the end of verse 13. These false prophets not only rejoice in their wickedness, but they seek to infect the church with it. They are not content to just blaspheme the name of God only among themselves. No, they seek to live out their blasphemy while they feast with you, Peter says in verse 13. They seek to infiltrate the church and they can never get enough. They are insatiable for sin, verse 14 and they entice unsteady souls. They they chase the vulnerable. They chase those who are susceptible to their falsehood. They prey on new Christians, those who have not steadied God's word for years and years. And there's a great warning here for us. Peter calls these false teachers blots and blemishes. And the church is called to be washed of her blots and blemishes by the blood of Jesus Christ and by his word. And so we must be aware that Satan seeks to infiltrate the church through false, false prophets and false teachers. He longs to be a stain on the body of Christ. And we must be on our knees daily pleading with the Lord to purify his church, To refine his church, I encourage you, let this be your prayer that God's sanctifying work, though painful at times, though even torturous for us, let this be our prayer that he would do the work of sanctifying us. And this is why church discipline matters. Church discipline is important. Paul says, Purge the evil one from among your midst. Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you, who seek to infiltrate the church, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. And Paul instructs the elders in Acts chapter 20 to protect you from these wolves. This is why church discipline matters. It's biblical. It's an act of love, both for the congregation, for their protection, for the sheep, but also for the one under discipline, that God might humble them, that they might repent and seek his mercy. And the reformers taught that a church that does not practice church discipline is not a true church. If we do not take God's word seriously, when it comes to church discipline, God will not take us seriously. He will remove our lampstand. And so if a church does not practice church discipline, run because your soul hangs in the balance. And we must pray for those we know who are under the discipline of the church, those who are caught in sin, Galatians, in Galatians it says those of you who are spiritual seek to restore those who fall with a spirit of gentleness. We should seek to restore the one sheep who wanders away from the fold, that God would bring them to their knees and they would plead for his mercy. Well, Lastly, we see the rival of the false prophets. Their rival is ultimately the voice of God through a dumb beast. In verses 15 and 16 we, we see that there are only two ways in life, there are two options, two roads, two voices to follow. There is the way of life, the voice of life, and there is the way of death and the voice of death. And rather than heed the voice of life, the false prophets follow their father, Balaam, in the wrong way. The sons of Lamech, the sons of Balaam, these false prophets perpetuate the sins of their fathers. They follow in the footsteps of their lineage. In the Old Testament, Balaam tried to make a prophet by being a voice of untruth. He was a mercenary prophet, a a hired prophesying hitman who sought to discredit the voice of truth, the voice of God. And the great irony is this. Not only does God turn Balaam's cursing into blessing, but Balaam's prophets that he so desperately seeks to acquire, they gain him nothing, only death. The way of Balaam leads to death. Now the ESV says, Balaam the son of Beor, but it really should reflect the Greek here because there's a pun here that Peter wants us to see. <coughs> Balaam is rather the son of Basor, which sounds like the Hebrew word for flesh, basar. Peter is making a pun, the, the Hebrew word there for flesh, Uh, draws our attention to the fact that Balaam was a fleshly man, he was a son of the flesh. This false prophetic line, by its very definition, is fleshly, it's concerned with earthly pleasure, with hedonism, with sensuality, with greed, with immorality. And in an ironic twist, God rebuked Balaam an irrational animal as we see in verse 12. God rebuked Balaam, a prophet who's likened to an irrational animal. God rebukes Balaam with an irrational animal. There's the irony. He's rebuked by a donkey. And so you see that God uses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. The wisdom of God mocks the wisdom of this world. God uses what the world considers weak to shame the strong. Think of Moses, a prophet who is not of great lineage, who possessed no gifts of rhetoric or or words, And God uses this frail prophet to speak his definitive and true word. God uses what is weak, what the world considers foolish, to humble the proud, to shame the wise. After Eden, we see that there are only two lines, two lineages, two seeds, two two ways There is the way and the line of the true prophet and there is the way and the line of the false prophet. The line of Moses, the line of Balaam. The line of Jesus, the line of the devil. And Peter is saying these lines will be in continual conflict. And even when it seems at times that the serpent might be winning, the seed of the woman will always triumph. And so I encourage you today, I exhort you Hear the prophetic voice of Jesus Christ today. Hear the true prophet who is is of the lineage of Moses, who is greater than Elijah, who speaks a true and better word to you today. Walk in this way of truth. God's word will surely guide us into all truth and life everlasting. Amen, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is truth. Your voice is a herald of truth in a world of untruth, and we pray that you would equip us by your Holy Spirit to listen attentively to what you have to say. O Lord, like the deer pants for streams of water, would our souls thirst for you, thirst for your truths, thirst for your words. Thirst for your ways. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray all of these things. Amen.